It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, July 31st. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. Once we make it through the final episode of HBO's latest hit, we'll be twiddling our thumbs on the couch waiting for more content. However, consumers are but one in an ecosystem being impacted by the writers and actors' strike. Coming up, the California report shows just how far the strike's reverberations are felt. Then, after National Native News, we'll take a look at what's going on in our listening area and bring you your weather forecast. We're deep into wildfire season, and KVMR's news director is here with a crash course in fire weather jargon you may need to know. Claudio Mendoza gets the details from a National Weather Service meteorologist up ahead. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. State agricultural officials have placed a 79-square-mile area in Los Angeles County under quarantine because of the presence of an invasive fruit fly. Residents in part of the Santa Clarita Valley near Stevenson Ranch have been asked not to move any fruits and vegetables off their properties. That's because more than 20 Tau fruit flies, which are native to Asia, have been found in the area in recent weeks. Officials think travelers likely brought the fly with uninspected produce across state lines. Let's turn to sports. The U.S. women's soccer team needs a win or tie tomorrow against Portugal to advance to the round of 16 in the Women's World Cup. And as we hear from the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi, if the team does advance, one lucky group of California college athletes will be on hand to cheer on the squad in Australia. Honestly, literally a dream come true. I mean, I've been watching this team since I was a little girl, so I'll be so starstruck watching them play if we get to do that. That's junior midfielder Emma McChristy, who plays on Cal Poly Humboldt's women's soccer team. She says she never thought she'd get a chance to see the World Cup in person. But now, the Lady Lumberjacks are hoping to take in at least two matches while they're down under. Plus, they'll also be playing against local teams while they're there. McChristy says it's the opportunity of a lifetime. This is such an advantage for our team on a bonding level to go do this before season even starts. So I'm just excited that I get to experience this with my team. I'm definitely going to remember these moments for the rest of my life. The team will also be taking part in community service projects. For the California Report, I'm Keith Mizuguchi. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, comprising its School of Medicine and Adult and Children's Health Systems, working together to advance knowledge and improve lives, stanfordmedicine.org. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Here in Los Angeles, the strikes by film and television writers and actors continue. And studios and streamers, at least for now, show no interest in sitting down and negotiating. That, of course, has brought production to a standstill. No lights, no camera, no action. And with each day that passes, the wider economic toll of the strikes continues to mount. That includes the companies and people that provide goods and services to Hollywood. People like Nathan Haskell. When you have a business like ours, I don't get anything unless the movie industry is moving. 
Haskell manages the Hand Prop Room, one of the biggest prop houses in L.A. Its massive and labyrinth-like warehouse is stuffed full of, well, stuff. I feel like I'm in the world's best thrift store here. (laughs) Haskell's business rents out nearly every kind of object imaginable to movie and TV productions, from suits of medieval armor and gladiator swords to old-time telephones and suitcases. Luggage is a huge renter for us. You see an airport scene in a movie and you don't really think about the people in the background walking by with suitcases. Someone's going to come and rent 50, 60 pieces of luggage and that's a good rent for us because you need that kind of stuff in a movie. But because of the Hollywood strikes, Haskell's business has cratered and he says he's not alone. I don't think people realize how many people it takes to make a movie and how many businesses are affected. It's the flower shop, it's food stylists, it's prop houses, it's costumes. There's so much that goes into it, and there's so many people that are just getting buried right now because they can't work. Haskell says he's been able to avoid layoffs, at least for now, by focusing on housekeeping. Employees are doing things like inventory and repairing broken props. But Haskell says that kind of work can only last so long. We've kept everybody on for the last three months, and we want to continue to do so. It's just, after a while, you got to stop the bleeding at some point. Meanwhile, other businesses that serve the now dormant film and television industry have already had to make deep job cuts. Once the actors sag after went on strike, there was no other alternative for us other than to do a complete shutdown. We laid off 45 people. That's Eddie Marks, the president of the Western Costume Company, which has supplied costumes to Hollywood since the days of silent films. On the floor of his warehouse, surrounded by thousands of pieces of clothing, I talked to Marks about what happens to his business and his handful of remaining employees if production remains frozen. If the strike doesn't end, and we're looking at something that extends out three months, six months, however long, what do you do? Well, turn the lights off, pretty much. We have a small group of people working in our manufacturing department. When their jobs are finished, they'll join the unemployed. And Marks notes that even when the strikes are settled, he'll have to wait to bring back many of his workers as productions slowly rev up again. It's probably going to be like four weeks after the strikes are over where we really start to build up our staff again. So it's not like a light switch being turned on again. No, it's unfortunately, it's not going to be like that. Back at his business, prop shop manager Nathan Haskell says he hopes striking writers and actors get what they want. But he also acknowledges feeling bitter because he thinks not enough attention is being paid to the wider pain caused by the strikes. Nobody's talking about all the other people that are not working because of this. And we don't get anything from it. When SAG and the writers make their deals, the only thing that does for me is able to be to operate a business again. So there's no benefit for my business, whatever deal they make, outside of I just get to be a business again. Haskell hopes that when Hollywood does go back to work, business will be as good as it was before. But he's not so sure. (laughs) 
And finally, do our brains exaggerate what we read on product labels and what they promise? A new study led by UCLA psychologists found that when health products are labeled as just clinically studied, people often recall them as being clinically proven. The authors say the findings could help explain consumers' unwarranted confidence in product claims and the popularity of products sold by the dietary supplement industry. And that is the California Report for Monday, July 31st. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and let's talk tomorrow. Affordable housing is a struggle throughout much of the country. Today's National Native News dives into a recent U.S. Senate vote that affects housing for American Indian, Alaskan Native, and Native Hawaiian communities. Details ahead. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native organizations are celebrating the passage of the Native American Housing Assistance and Self-Determination Act Reauthorization, also known as NAHASDA. It was included as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act of 2023, which was passed by the U.S. Senate last week by a vote of 86 to 11. NAHASDA helps provide affordable housing to American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian communities. It has not been reauthorized since 2013. In a statement, National American Indian Housing Council Executive Director Chelsea Fish said, NAHASDA has been a successful and supportive program since its inception and allows tribes to create their own housing plan. National Congress of American Indians Executive Director Larry Wright Jr. in a statement called it a victory for Indian country and said now the focus is on the house for its full implementation to help improve living conditions across Indian country. The amendment would reauthorize Nahasda for seven years. Among provisions, it would provide greater local control over programs, streamline environmental reviews for tribal housing projects, and incentivize private partnerships. U.S. Representatives Mary Peltola and Pete Stauber have introduced legislation they say will end 50 years of unfulfilled promises. The Unrecognized Southeast Alaska Native Communities Recognition and Compensation Act. The legislation would allow the communities of Haines, Ketchikan, Wrangell, Petersburg, and Tenakee to form urban corporations and receive land entitlements under the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971, also known as ANCSA. It would amend ANCSA to provide the five communities with the right to form corporations and receive more than 23,000 acres or one township of federal land, which was granted to other Southeast Native communities more than 50 years ago. A version is in the Senate. In a statement, the representative called it an unjust error and said it's long overdue to correct it. ANCSA divided 44 million acres of land among more than 200 regional village and urban corporations to resolve land claims in Alaska, but did not include the five Southeast communities. A community college in Winnebago, Nebraska, Little Priest Tribal College, celebrates its 25th anniversary this September. Deborah Van Fleet has more about the school. Little Priest President Manoj Patil says a common misconception is that only Native Americans can enroll, but the student body has been roughly 78% Native American and 22% non-Native students in recent years. He says they're looking forward to the groundbreaking for a major new science building in the next several weeks. We got a $1.2 million NSF grant two years back, and that's how we started the chemistry and the biology program. And that is now leading to the construction of a $6 million, 12,000 square foot, brand new state-of-the-art building. Little Priest offers an Associate of Arts degree in three areas, an Associate of Applied Science in two, including diversified ag and cannabis studies, and an Associate of Science in five. It also offers a certificate program in Certified Nursing Assistant. 
Tuition has been free since the summer of 2020. The college is part of the Nebraska Transfer Initiative and also has transfer agreements with private Nebraska colleges and universities. Patil says Ho-Chunk language and cultural preservation is a major focus at Little Priest. Camden Cleveland graduated from Little Priest Tribal College with honors and as valedictorian in 2021. He has since earned a bachelor's degree at Wayne State College, where his coursework was free because of the agreement between the colleges. Cleveland says the diversity at Little Priest helped prepare him for what he found at Wayne State. You got kids from all over the country at Wayne State, and with help from like the staff at Little Priest Tribal College, that kind of just made me understood where they're coming from, too. I'm Deborah Van Fleet. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at your local news. A 72-year-old North San Juan man, identified as Anthony Eric Stewart, was arrested for murder by Nevada County Sheriff's Office Major Crimes Unit detectives on Sunday afternoon, following a homicide investigation over the weekend. Nevada County Sheriff's Office received a call on Saturday at 11.24 p.m. from a passing driver, reporting what they believed was a deceased man outside a vehicle on the side of the road at Tyler Foot Crossing Road and Black Sands Mine Road in Nevada City. Deputies responded and located a 61-year-old Nevada City man dead at the scene. His identification will not be shared until police are able to notify his next of kin. The vehicle at the scene was determined to be the victim's and showed signs of damage to its exterior. Detectives determined a homicide had occurred after investigating the scene. Anthony Stewart was then identified as a suspect. He was arrested Sunday and booked into Wayne Brown Correctional Facility in Nevada City for murder, where he remains in custody without bail. The victim's cause of death is still pending with law enforcement awaiting information from an autopsy report. The investigation remains active and ongoing, and investigators urge any potential witnesses that may have further information to contact them at 530-265-7880 or by using an anonymous tip line email on the Nevada County Sheriff's Office website. High fire danger from persistent hot and dry weather have pushed Stage 1 of Tahoe National Forest fire restrictions to begin Tuesday, August 1st. Under these restrictions, the public can still maintain a campfire in established fire rings within designated developed campgrounds and day-use sites, but not outside of those areas. Fire Management Officer Kyle Jacobson says, quote, 
implementing fire restrictions is a proactive measure to ensure we, as fire managers, are doing our part to prioritize the safety of those that choose to live and recreate on the Tahoe National Forest. The decision to go into fire restrictions is based on a variety of factors. Forest managers use several criteria to determine when to implement restrictions, including current and predicted weather, fuel moisture, fire activity levels, and available firefighting resources. Stage 1 restrictions stretch from August 1st through November 1st. These restrictions prohibit building or maintaining a fire, campfire, or charcoal briquette fire outside of established fire rings, smoking except within an enclosed vehicle or building, a designated campground or recreation area, or while stopped in an area at least three feet in diameter that is barren or cleared of all flammable material, and operating an internal combustion engine off paved, gravel, or dirt national forest system roads and trails. The full forest order and list of designated developed recreation sites can be found at the USDA Forest Service website. Now let's take a look at your local forecast from the National Weather Service. Today was another day of dry, warm weather with elevated fire weather conditions for much of our listening area. There's a small chance of thunderstorms on Wednesday afternoon and evening and again on Friday. Temperatures are forecast to cool beginning tomorrow through Thursday before we see another warming trend take hold. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight partly cloudy with a low around 62 degrees. Tuesday mostly sunny with a high near 88. Tuesday night will be mostly cloudy with a low around 61 degrees. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight mostly clear with a low around 48 degrees. Tuesday mostly sunny with a high near 79. Tuesday night will be mostly cloudy with a low around 53 degrees. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight partly cloudy with a low around 59 degrees. Tuesday, increasing clouds with a high near 87. Tuesday night will be partly cloudy with a low around 59 degrees. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. During this time of the year, we often hear about fire weather watches and red flag warnings. But have you ever wondered what they really mean? KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza fills us in with help from a National Weather Service meteorologist. If you get your weather forecasts from the National Weather Service, then you've likely seen mentions of either a fire weather watch or the more ominous red flag warning. But do you really know what they are? I didn't. So I called the Sacramento office of the National Weather Service to find out. I'm Craig Shoemaker, meteorologist with the National Weather Service, Sacramento. My first question was pretty basic. What is fire weather? Fire weather is the forecasting of weather elements that affect fire starts and development and spread. The typical uh, weather elements um, that would be associated with are usually wind and relative humidity. Um, there are a few others also, but those are really the main ones that, that affect that. Uh, and also um, fuel moisture and sort of the, the way that the, uh, how dry the um, trees and the brush and the grass are, that also plays a big factor too. Once I understood that, I asked him to explain what a fire weather watch was, and it turns out that a fire weather watch and a red flag warning are very similar, 
But the difference, according to Craig, is related to time. A fire weather watch is typically issued days ahead of those dry conditions that he mentioned. A fire weather watch is something is a product that's sent out much, you know, much, you know, we're we're talking about something that would be maybe two to five days, maybe even six days out. If those conditions persist, then the watch is elevated to a red flag warning. As we see those conditions are continuing to look likely, and we're pretty confident that that's going to happen, then we would elevate that to a warning. So a watch means that we are uh, predicting that those will, will happen. When we get to a warning, that's sort of, you know, we're elevating that watch, and we're saying these conditions are going to happen. It's worth noting that while you could have a watch without a warning, it isn't very likely. There are times when we could issue a fire weather watch and the forecast could change and it would never get elevated to a warning. It just would be, you know, it would go away, essentially. We would cancel it. But that doesn't happen very often. We usually, typically, when we issue a fire weather watch, it's already got pretty good confidence and then we, and generally it goes to a a red flag warning. But there can be times where the forecast could change Um, and and it could be, uh, you know, dropped. It turns out that while the National Weather Service does share the information with the public, fire weather watches and red flag warnings were originally created for fire agencies so that they could be ready when weather conditions increase the likelihood of fire starts. Um, A lot of this has to do with um, wording that's done with fire agencies. This is, you know, because this product essentially is mainly for fire agencies. At one point in time, this was not a public product. 15 or 20 years ago, this was a product that we sent out, but the public didn't see it. It's mainly a product that's geared towards CAL FIRE in our area and also federal fire agencies and state agencies, basically. Much like you and I might check the weather forecast to decide if we need to pack rain gear before heading out on a fall morning, these fire weather watches and red flag warnings help fire agencies decide how to allocate resources and determine readiness levels when it matters most. For the rest of us, it doesn't really hurt to know when we should be more alert to one of the biggest risks of living in the wildland-urban interface. I'm Claudio Mendonca for KVMR. That's our newscast for Monday, July 31st. Listen to anything you may have missed at our website, kvmr.org, and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Craig Johnson Plumbing, family-owned plumbing and rooting services serving Nevada and Placer counties since 2004. Craig and Denise provide plumbing repairs, installation, and emergency services for residential and commercial customers. Information online at craigjohnsonplumbing.com. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendonca. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. Thank you.